Welcome to episode 7 of the Stay Humble podcast. Today's guest, Martin Johnson, is the founder of Trans2 Performance, motivational speaker and author of I Am Human, 30 Mistakes to Success. In this episode, we discuss Martin's iceberg analogy for sense of purpose, how, why and where, how people build resilience from the current lockdown situation, change your mindset using an open loop thinking approach and there are many more knowledge bombs that Martin drops in this episode. I hope you enjoy, stay safe, stay humble. Right, welcome to Stay Humble Podcast, Martin Johnson. First, I want to start with is a three-word check-in to describe how you are feeling today. Three-word check-in. I am energised. I've just come from a meeting, uh, a really good meeting about some work we might be doing with an organisation. So I'm energised. Um, I'm optimistic post-COVID. So obviously we've had a challenging, um, we've had a challenging three or four months. But I'm, I've, I've always feel felt optimistic. But I'm, I'm optimistic now more than ever. Um, and I guess the third one is, um, attacking, I'm going to use the word attacking. So as well as being energized and optimistic, my view through all of this has been, I want to attack, not defend in everything I do, whether that's the business that we're running, uh, attacking on investments on proceeding with product development. Uh, I've even bought a personal property, a second property, a buy to let from a personal perspective, cause I just see it as an opportunity. No, that's great. Um, what I would say for myself, um, I'm a little bit tired because I've just been doing some extra work, um, just at a care home, like a care home for residential kids. So I'm a little bit tired from that, just doing a couple of hours there. Um, I'm engaged in terms of listening to what you want to tell to me about and stuff. And I'm just, you know, um, probably learning from you would be a really good one um, to, to talk about. And what I wanted to firstly go over is obviously from reading your book about I am human and 30 mistakes to success. I wanted to just cover the your sort of sense of purpose. So you talk about the iceberg analogy. Can you elaborate that for the listeners in terms of the three parts of the how, why, and the where? Yeah. So what we have, or what I developed probably over the last 10 to 15 years was this understanding of uh, what makes human beings think, feel, act, and behave. And, you know, um, I, I felt that many organizations and many trainers many consultants many people when they do when they read self-help books they they focus on the the, the above the waterline behaviors characteristics and traits of human beings and they want to explore why they you know the way they act and the way they come across and what their personality style is but that's only one layer of the iceberg for me so with all human beings we have sort of three layers we have yes we have the above the waterline behaviors which people see and observe so you can only judge people based on what you see and observe in them, their behaviors, the way they conduct themselves. Um, but we have two other layers. Now, what we found in, in performance psychology is when you strip people back, there's something driving and regulating those behaviors in the form of unconscious motivators. So between the ages of one to 21 years old, roughly, when our brain is developing, um, we start to form one or two key motivators called unconscious motivators, which drive and regulate our behavior. They are the things, it's the way we see the world. It's what we have to have fulfilled on a daily basis. But coming to your point, there is a third layer of the iceberg, which is if the motivations that manifest within us drive our behavior, where do those motivations come from? And that's our sense of purpose. So in those formative years, we find in the work that we do, Dave, that there are three main environments where those motivations can come from your parents, the way your parents parented you, 
yeah. your early social exposure, so the estate you grew up in or the village or the, the friends you knocked around with, and uh, your educational exposure, you know, the, your educational years. So parental, social, and educational. And what we find is the key events that happen in your formative years in those three areas are called anchors in psychology. It starts to form your motivations and the way you see the world, which then forms your personality and your behavior. So, yeah, my sense of purpose, if you think about that analogy, I I, I can track back to my sense of purpose being uh, at maybe 11 years old. uh, My parents separated. um, My dad moved out. My mum struggled with three kids. We moved from our home to a council estate. And it was the first time in our life where really we struggled and I had to grow up fast and become strong and self-reliant and, and fend for myself and chip in around the house and all the rest of it. And and I think that was the early forms of my sense of purpose to, to really uh, do well in life and succeed and achieve. So, you know, I, I fast forward to now I'm, I'm 38 years old and I've got three kids and a wife and I never want them to struggle or to be in that position. So whenever I'm having a bit of a wobble or whenever I'm struggling or whenever I, you know, have a challenge. I always think back to my sense of purpose, which is I've been 11 years old, not having much, struggling and watching my mother struggle. And it instantly brings me back in the room. That's the reason why I'm willing to offer the significant contribution required to be successful. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It's a great way of explaining that analogy to me. And what I wanted to just touch on now in terms of that sort of people's sense of purpose with this sort of situation of a lockdown and people's work being affected, how, how, you know, with it been taken away, like, so do you feel people's like sense of purpose or motivation has been taken away because of this sort of lockdown and, you know, the jobs, they might have lost the jobs, they're not in the work and stuff like that. Do you think that's been changed for people? Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting one. What I always have this, this sort of uh, question come at me, can you change depending on your current circumstance? Well, If you look at them three layers of the iceberg, what we find is that your sense of purpose, so the origins of what causes you to see the world the the way you see it, and therefore your unconscious motivators that drive behavior, they don't tend to change. They're pretty deep-seated in you and makes you who you are. What changes is the the above-the-waterline behavior, so how you react and respond to those motivations and sense of purpose. And I think what will have happened in lockdown or through COVID is people still have their core sense of purpose. They still have their motivations in life, but maybe the perspective around them has changed. So maybe some people have completely relaxed and let go of some stuff and realized that they have to slow down or that they're going to make some changes in their life for the better. Uh, maybe people have gone the opposite way and decided that actually it's time to it's time to stand up and get mo- get motivated and drive some 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 goals and some results in life. So I think many people will will have definitely have been influenced and changed by a situation like COVID nineteen. Um, but I think it's more the way they're reacting to their sense of purpose and motivators rather than them completely having a personality transplant and everything's changed. Does that make sense? I think some people's perception of 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 things has has dramatically changed as a result of COVID. Yeah, I agree. Like it's obviously had had an effect in terms of just like the the surroundings and obviously their sort of routines as well. You know, routine of going to work and having that sort of thing taken away. You know, do people have to still build sort of routines and habits in their life to still keep themselves um, motivated 
for when their time, hopefully, you know, they're able to reintegrate back into their working patterns. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people have realised, like, sort of, I, I, so I run a company, I'm a, a founder of an organisation as well as working for that organisation, as well as being a father, as well as being a husband. And um, one of the things I've realised is, no, can we as employees and as a team, can we be as productive working more reduced hours and more flexible, more flexible? I mean, we are pretty flexible anyway, but, you know, did I see a massive drop off in terms of the output? No, I didn't. Right. Is it still important, though, that in terms of what we do, we are still present as a team and present when we're delivering what we do? Absolutely. So. I think it's made me think about the way we operate and I found two or three changes we can make that'll make a massive difference. So I think everybody's had that um everybody's had that epiphany haven't they that actually I don't need to run around like a headless chicken. I don't need to bombard my day full of stuff. I do need to have some downtime and I can take some stuff out of my agenda that's going to free me up and and, and it's going to positively impact my overall well-being. Yeah, I agree. In terms of like time management, people have now actually realised that they've got more time than ever. You know, using using that time wisely rather than thinking, oh, I've got to rush, 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 rush. This has now allowed people to sort of re re look at themselves in a sense and know that actually I can make time for these things and be more present, like you said there. I think yeah. that's something that they certainly should look at doing. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of that as well, from that sort of experience for people, can people use that to build resi- resilience, you know, from dealing with these sort of setbacks in their lives? Do you think that can be a way of building that up? Yeah, resilience is a, is a great question. And we, we, we get asked a lot about it in our sessions and in our one-to-one work and all the stuff we do here. And um, I, I'm a massive believer in, uh, in resilience on, is only built through adversity. Uh, or, or being pushed out your comfort zone or being uncomfortable, getting comfortable in being uncomfortable, if you like. And, um, you know, you can't build resilience if you don't face situations head on or if you don't try to surface things that trouble you and try and reframe them in, in your mind, if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, resilience is uh, – there's two two tips I'd give on resilience. If, if you fear something or if you don't feel very resilient in a certain situation, the only way to become resilient, the first thing is, is uh, repetition. So putting yourself in the fear, the power of repetition is really important. And I'll give you an example. When I first started doing public speaking, um, as good as people might have said it was and as comfortable as I may have looked to people, I wasn't on the inside. I was terrified. And I remember coming away from my first few conference gigs and almost collapsing in the car thinking never again. You know, it was it was so nerve wracking. And that went on with me for about three years. I was terrified. I used to get sweaty palms. I used, my heart rate would rise. I used to pace up and down. And um, I used to be incredibly nervous about doing it. And then I'd do the talk or the gig. And then I'd come off uh, after a positive reaction or a round of applause. And I'd feel great. And it was enough to keep me going back. But let me tell you, for three years, I was terrified. And only through the power of repetition of doing it time and time again, did it get a little bit easier every time? And I can honestly say now, 14 years on, I genuinely, I still get nerves, right? I still get nerves and it's still that level of fight or flight that releases in me. But I can manage it and I can turn and harness it and channel it into adrenaline. And now I genuinely enjoy it and get fulfillment from it. But the point being is to build the resilience up against the fear of public speaking, I had to do it probably 500 times before I remotely became used to it. Now, what did 
typically the people do in their life. If you're scared of heights or if you've got a fear of public speaking or if you've got a fear of uh, whatever it might be, right, um, unless you put yourself in that and, and time and time again, you're never going to get rid of that fear. In fact, when you avoid it, if you're the type of person who is scared of flying so you don't get on a plane, you cancel your holiday every year, then that fear grows because your brain goes, well, we got away with that one. Remember, we don't like flying. Right. So the, the fear grows if you avoid it, whereas the fear shrinks when you put yourself in it time and time again through the power of repetition. So the first thing I'd say on resilience is you've got to do something that feels incredibly uncomfortable, comfortable to you an awful lot of times before you build the resilience level to deal with it. The second thing is reframing something that's happened in the past that has created this anchor in your brain that something's bad or has bad experience. Yeah. So if you've ever fallen out with a family member, for example, um dave or you've you know you've maybe uh, had a really bad experience with a manager at, at, in your workplace you could put an anchor psychological anchor in your brain that me and my family member hate each other or or management is bad right they're all they're all bad managers so what you tend to do is because you have that resentment build up then every time you go into that interaction it ends up being a negative experience for you whereas when you reframe and replay what what's happened in the past and take the positives out of it or look at it from a different context, then you start becoming more resilient against its effects. So, you know, for years, maybe an example of this might be, you know, if my parents split when I was 11 and I was probably incredibly resentful of that for a number of years, which made me angry and probably counterproductive. But only when I when I became more mature and I reflected on on that, actually, it made me incredibly strong, independent, self-reliant. We got by. And would I be the same person now without that past experience? Would I be would I be as driven to succeed without that? Probably no, I wouldn't. So so by reframing it into something into a different way that I that I view it, it's built me. It's made me more resilient against its effects. Does that make sense? So yeah, definitely. Two tips there: power of repetition on anything you fear will make you more resilient. And past experiences that are harming you or causing you frustration or anger you've got to you've got to dig them out not ignore them you've got to address them and you've got to reframe them no they're really great points mine that you've covered it's something that i'm just like kind of reading at the moment in steve pressfield's the, the out of war i think that's again about res, is it resist it's like the resistance into it or terms of people um use it not you know choosing not to do them sort of things i think that's covered in that sort of book again and I think that's certainly from your points there they're the best ways in terms of building that resilience I definitely would agree with you on that is there again I was just going to refer back to your book in terms of the you know, mindset again and I know that you refer to in your book in terms of open and closed loop thinkers do you um can you maybe just sort of refer back to that a little bit in terms of um how people could use that to help improve their mindset yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm I'm passionate about open and closed loop thinking, and it's a piece of research I did uh, over about a, a 12 month period where um, it came to I, I knew this that there was this type of mindset that a lot of people were getting themselves into, and I didn't know how to describe it. And then I was inspired by uh, reading um, Black Box Thinking by Matthew Said, and he mentions about cognitive dissonance in psychology, and cognitive dissonance is where we, we try to justify an outcome. We make, we, you know, we draw a line in the sand or we come to a conclusion and we justify it. So I, I, I developed this thing called open open versus closed loop thinking. And what that means is, is that 
and we all do it in life, closed loop thinking is when we start to predetermine the outcome to a position, scenario or event. So it's where, you know, I don't know. So the, the missus or, or your husband says to you, right, we're going to we're going to my mother's and father's at the weekend. And you instantly go, oh, do we have to? Right. Or or you'll you'll write off the experience instantly. I do this about anywhere that's remotely where my wife tells me that we're going anywhere where I'm going to have to queue. So she if she said she said to me once, we're going to, we're going to go to Alton Towers with the kids. And I went, do we have to? Alton Towers, it's going to take three hours to get there. The queues are three hours long for one 10 second ride. It's going to be eight quid a Coke. All this right. I'm writing it off because I'm very impatient. And uh, that's closed loop thinking. So I'm already deciding it's going to be a bad experience yeah. and I don't want to do it. So when I get dragged kicking and screaming, what closed loop thinking does is if I'm not conscious of it, I'll then go proceed to go to Alton Towers and every little thing that happens, every cue, every little thing I've said will happen. I'm sat there going, I told you so. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's almost like we're trying to justify why we are right and very rarely challenge why we're wrong. And in the workplace, for example, this happens all the time. So somebody will suggest a new idea to do something differently. And, and another person will instantly say, well, that'll never work. We tried that five years ago. Bang. And they'll absolutely yeah. already put their line in the sand. And then if they disagree with the other person, they'll do all they can to justify why this project will never work. Rather than throwing themselves in from an open loop perspective and open the loop and say well what's our opportunity here so when we talk about open versus closed loop thinking if you're a person if you're listening to this podcast and you're a person who in your personal or professional life you are constantly already writing off opportunities or deciding how th something's going to pan out or what might not work or what's going to be you've got to stop yourself because it will be what you want it to be the human psyche is an incredibly powerful thing it will be what you want it to be what we want to try and be is an open loop thinker. You still have this gut feeling that this is going to be a waste of time or I don't want to go there or this will never work. But you need to ask yourself the question, but am I wrong? And when you ask yourself the question, but am I wrong? Then you open the loop because you start thinking about alternatives. Well, how could we do it differently and make it work this time? When you start open loop thinking, you start thinking about opportunities that drives a different set of actions, which almost always drives a different outcome. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, Dave, but I think we all get dragged into a bit of closed loop thinking at times. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Martin. I think people just have that sort of they just they don't look to try and find different ways. Maybe that could reintegrate something new, like you say, in a workplace environment or um, maybe something at home or anything like that that can use that sort of change in mindset of just being more open with something and willing to maybe give it a try. And then if it doesn't work, then obviously that's that. But I think certainly that's a better way of thinking about these sort of, you know, like your scenario there in terms of a workplace or your analogy of Alton Towers, you know, of having a bit more of an open mindset is maybe a more positive frame of mind isn't it really it is and you know what we went on that Alton Towers trip I opened the loop uh, my wife was right um, I opened the loop we went we had a fabulous day we did queue three hours for rides it was eight quid a coke you know all the rest of it right but you know what I've taken my kids all over the world Dave I've taken them to Australia Mexico Cyprus everywhere right the only holiday they ever talk about is bloody Alton Towers <laughs> right because they had the time of their lives because it will be what we want it to be. And yeah. um, and that's a really important lesson in life. And I'll tell you where the number one thing that instigates closed loop thinking is survival. So 
we're a species. If you strip us back and go back 200,000 years, you know, we foraged the earth and we were on survival mode every day. It's still our number one innate response in line with Steve Peters' chimp paradox theory. So survival is constantly eating away at us. Now, in the modern day world, survival is not running away from saber-toothed tigers or being the risk of being killed every day. Survival to us now is about protecting our ideas, our egos, our reputations, you know, not being exposed. So what um, closed-loop thinking does is if you fear in a survival mode that something, you know, might go wrong and you might be accountable for that then you close loop think by already putting your line in the sand and going right i'm telling you now it's not going to work so when it all goes tits up you can't blame me so i understand the human dynamic of where it comes from but what you're doing in the meantime is you're cutting off all of your growth all of your opportunities all of your positivity and you almost retract from from trying to make something work and that's not that's not going to serve you well in the long run no, that's a really good way of looking at that mind. Um, I was just going to have a few more questions for you. And one of the ones I wanted to cover is um, school education. Um, I think I've heard you mention this on Pig Wrestling Podcast. I'm certain that you've read it in your book in terms of the education curriculum. Um, obviously, I spoke to you before this and explained that I work in a school myself. And I wanted to wonder what you would teach children today and to be ready for a modern world. Oh, Dave, you set me up here, aren't you? Because you know, I've got a, I may have a popular or unpopular position on education. And um, and the first thing I'd say is it's not to say a lot of my family are in education. It's not to say that anybody who works in education doesn't graft, work hard and do their very, very best for, for our children. And our education system in the UK today globally is still one of the most advanced in the world. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's plenty of countries and cultures who are in a, a completely different position. But here's my point. Um, if you think about our education and our curriculum and the way we we teach children, it's served as well for a number of years, but it's not changed very much, probably in 80, 100 years, in the fact that we have uh, uh, certain subjects that we teach kids, like science, maths, English, history, you know, all of that type of stuff. We have this curriculum that we think we have these levels like, you know, different levels. And uh, in primary schools, they call it, you know, bronze, silver, gold. And then as you go into secondary school, you have gradings and, you know, and and it's and and it's sort of served a purpose for years. But as we've evolved and as we've changed, one of the challenges with that is for me, people have more choice than ever in the modern day world. If you think about 50 years ago, Dave, I think that there were uh, uh, maybe a dozen industries that you went into in your career, you know, and you worked within the proximity of where you lived because you didn't have the technology and the the transport that we have now. So you'd, you'd, you'd go through school, you'd come out, you'd either be an engineer or you'd work in manufacturing back in the day, or you'd work as a fireman, police force, NHS in the public sector. You'd work in education. You know, the traditional industries that have always been there for the last 50, 70 years. But you look at the world now, and it's a completely different world. There's no shortage of things that you can do. I mean, you could leave school now uh, with a credit card and a PC, set up a business and be trading within 12 hours, right? It's just the way of the world. Crazy. So, so people have more choice than ever is my first point. And because of that, um, I think that some of the traditional ways of learning are n- almost never going to be applied in the real world. So, for example, unless you're going to be an astrophysicist or a scientist, when would you ever use algebra? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a classic example, right? 
my point has always been one of the things we have to teach the generations coming through is life skills. So for the world they are going to live in, what do they need to know? Um, and, and things like uh, how, how to buy a house, what yeah. is a mortgage, what bills do you uh, have when you first move into a house, what's council tax, you know, what, what's home and contents insurance. They don't get taught that at school and then they're expected to get on the property ladder and they haven't got a clue, right? Hopefully they've got parents who can guide them, you know, so that's just a, a, a thingy example. But I would, I would also shift target to some of the curriculum around the jobs they're likely to have. So rather than teaching the mental maths or how to work out practical maths, the reality is, is our kids are never going to have to uh, calculate any mathematic equation on a piece of paper in their life. Do you know why? Because they're going to do it on a computer or a smartphone or a device or a calculator. Yeah. They don't need to show their workings out on a piece of paper. Now, you could say if you understand the mental, practical way of, of, of working out a mathematic equation, then it's going to be even more simple when you do it digitally. But I'm just making the point that the world has shifted in 100 years massively. But as the educational system and the curriculum shifted in alignment with it, my answer to that would be probably not. Probably yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, Martin, in a sense like life skills are something I think I should have been taught. And that was 12 years ago. And we're still still back in the same sort of teachings and methods now. And I can't understand like the fact we've just now had a period where we've had sort of a downtime in terms of school, like there's less school activity and it's a perfect opportunity to change that curriculum. I was speaking to a child psychologist on a podcast recently and she's the same. She thought this was the op absolute time now to change the way curriculum should be taught to children. And yet it sounds like we're just going to go back to the, what we've, we've been doing again. And we're probably going to put more emphasis on learning because of what's been missed and less focus on things that will actually be life skills really and I think that's just a shame if that is what the, the way we move instead of actually being let's take some time let's teach some life skills let's less focus on these things and and make people more ready for the world today yeah and I think a massive opportunity is uh, on a really if it's positioned at the right level is uh, a little bit of psychology in school curriculum around getting children certainly in adolescent years and secondary school to understand their emotions and how their brain works and where the fight or flight chemical comes from and what would bring that on and, and coping mechanisms of how you rationalize in stressful situations. Because if we're going to have an impact on mental health going forward, which is a big topic for everybody at the minute, I mean, it's always been there, but yeah. I think it's just, it's just becoming more apparent than ever. Then one of the part of the problem is, is when, when children are growing up and going through school, which is tough and then leaving school, they don't know how to, they don't know how to deal with their emotions. They don't know what their emotions are. They don't know where they come from. They don't know why they feel sad. What 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 is the difference between being depressed and just being 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 uh, un, uh, in a threat state or being under pressure? Because I this is another big thing I say. I don't believe that you can talk about other oh, generations. They don't make them like they used to. They're all depressed and stressed these days. I just think what we're doing these days, and it's got a number of factors that links into it, like social media and the digital world and what they're exposed to. But I think we're catastrophizing basic human stress. So what I mean by that is, you know, we all grew up with avoidant attachment styles with post-war grandparents and parents yeah. where you were brought up to be independent and get on with it. And you were de dealing with situations on a daily basis out there in the world more than our kids are, without a doubt, right? But I think they're catastrophizing stress. 
and then it very quickly becomes misinterpreted into a, into I'm depressed or I'm whatever it might be. Now, I'm not saying all people aren't. I'm just saying that if we can get our kids to understand what's happening, what the stress response is, coping mechanisms of how you compartmentalize it and deal with it before it becomes a habitual ongoing problem, then we've got a fighting chance. You know, we've got yeah. a fighting chance of making a dent, but that's got to be that for me, that's got to be included in education because, uh, you know, not as an afterthought when 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 it's all happening. So, yeah, I mean, listen, it, it, it's hard to get it perfect, but I do think there's going to be some key changes that would make a huge difference in education. And I think we've got to uh, align our education system to the world, to the world that our future generation is going to live in and not based on what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that, Martin. The one thing that concerns me from speaking um, about this sort of topic is um, listening. Just listen and let them have a voice in terms of children. Let them express their emotions and talk to parents or talk to adults at work. If they talk to people, then that's going to help in terms of their emotions and being able to share them things. Don't let them bottle it up or not have anyone to talk to is going to be the biggest thing in terms of that mental health in secondary, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and you know, think about 20, 30 years from now. There are some things that kids are doing in school with the foresight of going into certain jobs that will not exist. Yeah. They will not exist, right? So, you know, you in 20, 30 years from now, as a business owner, you won't have – accountants and finance people and people punching numbers into spreadsheets you will have some ai technology that does it all for you right and and therefore but you will have certain other jobs where it still needs um you know human beings to to to, to do that role so it's about looking ahead as well i think and working with industries and working with organizations to say what does the workplace look like in 20 30 years and therefore how do we gear up our education system to give you you know, the next generation who are going to thrive in those roles. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not an easy fix and it's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not something we can turn around overnight, but it's definitely something we should be debating and thinking about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And speaking of being hu- like humans and stuff, you wrote a book that's called I Am Human, but what does being human mean to you? Being human, um, it's a great question as we come to the end of this podcast, Dave, I think, because being human is the mis- biggest misconception I think we have in terms of we we fee- we see ourselves as a superior race in the species on planet Earth, right? We are an animal. That's all we are. Homo yeah. sapiens, we are an animal. Chimpanzees, you know, lions, tigers, all, all the different species on Earth, we started out as Homo sapiens foraging the Earth as an animal. And um, if you think of us like that, what's happened is there was a key turning point in history where uh, if you read the book Sapiens by um, Noah Yuval Harari, it's a great book, and Sapiens takes you on the journey of our evolution. There was a key turning point about 250,000 years ago where cavemen and women or homo sapiens foraging the earth at, at that time used to use fire to keep warm in an evening, right, or, and keep uh, predators away. And then, and we used fire in that con- context for, for years. And then what happened was, at some point along the line, the theory is that we discovered that we could cook our food on the fire. And the one thing changed in our anatomy at that point. When we discovered that we could cook food on the fire, we could digest our food 
a lot quicker. It used to take three days to digest berries where it could take two hours to digest cooked meat. So what happened is our body changed over times, over thousands of years. Our intestines started to shrink and become more efficient. Our brain developed and grew because the nutrients and w- w- was, was, was flowing to the brain. We developed a prefrontal cortex behind our forehead, which was a rational, logical brain. We learned to build tools, hunt, farm. The rest is history. So although we are an advanced species and we are at the top of the food chain and we are homo sapiens and we run the earth and the thing, we are still an animal. And if you and the reason why I say when you ask the question, what does it mean to be human is we are very basic at a functional level. We have three needs in life, survival, reproduction and purpose. We have to survive every single day. You know, we have our fight or flight and stress is a good thing. We get the stress and the anxiety response because it one day it'll keep us alive. Yeah. The problem being is it's gone, it's gone from life or death situations to Facebook and what somebody posts is that aimed at me versus do, am I going to lose my job versus what does, you know, all of this stuff, right? So number one, survival. Number two, we have to find a mate and reproduce. We're no different to any other species, right? It's why sex is great. We have to look at somebody and go, they're all right, because we have to continue the species. And number three is really important, and this brings me to my final point, purpose. As well as surviving and reproducing, the third and final function of every homo sapien on this planet is this. At an individual level, we have to feel like we contribute in some way. We we have a sense of belonging or we we have a... A, a, a you know something to contribute to and for many of us that's our career in in yeah. in modern day for some of us it's family for some of us it's charity work or a hobby for some it's a mixture of all three but here's what i find human beings who feel relatively safe and are not in constantly in a survival fight or flight mode they you know have a family or a tribe around them who are pretty safe and at an individual level they feel like they have a true purpose they are one hell of a productive, motivating human being. If any of those three things are taken away from us as a human, we start to wobble. If we feel under threat all the time, we start to wobble. If those around us feel under threat or are not coping, we start to wobble. If we don't feel like we serve a purpose in anything that we do, then we have a big wobble. So what it means to be human is strip everything back in life, simplify life to three things, survival, reproduction, and purpose. And find out if you're having a tough time, find out which of those is missing. And I'll tell you something, Dave, I coach thousands of people, almost always it's purpose. When people don't feel like they contribute in some way or they they are valuable in some way or they are appreciated in a way, in a certain way, it, it really affects, affects you. So, and that's fortunately the one that you can change. If you don't feel like you're getting purpose in what you do, make a change. It's as simple as that. That's a fantastic Long-winded answer, but does that make sense? No, honestly, that's a fantastic answer to that question. I really appreciate that one. And just finally, what makes you stay humble, Martin? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, some might say, is Martin even humble? Uh, but, you know, I think I am. I think I am. Um, and, you know, I, I think my sense of purpose keeps me humble. I think knowing where I've come from, I am not, I'm always the most uneducated man in the room academically. I am. I never went on to high, higher education. I joined the military. I mean, obviously, since then, I've I've done qualifications and stuff. But in terms of initial, quali- I'm always uneducated academically. But I'm probably always the most ec- educated socially, which I think uh, really helps. But I think where I've come from, uh, council estate, you know, we never had anything growing up. I think because I can 
link back to that and always think back to that, then I'm incredibly grateful for what I have, which is a wonderful family, a nice house. I have a business which is thriving at the minute. Um, so I never, I never get carried away because I always know where I've come from. Um, and at the end of the day, I've, I've all, I also know what I want at the end uh, of it all, where I'm heading, what do I want to achieve at the end? And for me, it's very, very simple. It's, it's freedom. I'm always driven by the end game being freedom. And mm -hmm. part of that is financial freedom in the world we live in. Don't get me wrong, but freedom of choice and options. So if I can become financially free by working hard and staying humble and making sure that I never take my eye off the ball, then I'll achieve that freedom. And then I've got choices, you know, in my last, last, you know, 20, 25 years of my life or whatever that is to have choices and be free uh, is a wonderful thought. So that's what, I think that's what keeps me humble. That's a great way to finish this podcast, Martin. Um, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast, Martin. Where can people reach out to you if they want to like speak to you or you know get a bit more detail in terms of what you have discussed on this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to check out the book that you've mentioned, I Am Human, Thank Mistakes, Success, it's on Amazon. You can just search for it. Buy it. <laughs> yeah, buy it. Yeah, buy it definitely. It's only seven quid. You can buy it. Um, uh, but if you want to contact us at Trans2 Performance in terms of what we do here as a business, you know, you can you can email us at help at trans2performance.com or you can check out our website on www.trans2performance.com. Um, also, YouTube, we have plenty of videos and TED Talk style talks on YouTube. Just search for Martin Johnson at T2 on YouTube and you'll be able to find it. That's great, man. Thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Dave. I enjoyed that, mate. Thank you.